Hello everyone, my name is Raina Ershad. I'm a, a researcher at Oxford part of the time. And uh, my role is mainly that of a space scientist or a systems engineer, which means that I primarily design, build, or oversee the building of uh, space instruments. But that's not all it means, so I thought I would start by giving you a bit of an overview of the differences between those two roles, give you an idea of exactly what we do here. So, as a space scientist, I do all the things that might cover any of the applied science, and primarily that includes an awful lot of computer modeling. Um, the idea of the modeling is to design the space instrument, ultimately. So the most important thing to consider when you do that is what the requirements are. There's absolutely no point in designing an amazing instrument that looks really swish and ultra-sophisticated if it doesn't do any of the things that you actually want it to do. So usually you'll have a set of requirements that all flow down from whatever the main aim of the mission is. Then you need to undertake a large variety of tasks to make sure that all of those requirements are met. And that's where the space science part comes in. You need to be able to model the orbit of the spacecraft. So that's the orbital modeling, so you know exactly where it's going to be at any one point and what it's going to be pointing at so that you can make sure to design the instrument so that light actually falls on your detector and not on the blank side of your instrument box. In addition to that, uh, you also need to make sure that the light going through your instrument is collected and focused onto your detector so that you can look at it and you can actually analyze the data. And that's where the optical design work comes in. And you've got mirrors, lenses, bending the light. You've got to be able to understand exactly what all of those do as well as how to put them together in a meaningful way. The environment in space and on other planets is completely different to that on Earth, as you can imagine. So you've got to make sure that you know how hot or cold it's going to be and that your instrument will survive. And that's where the thermal analysis comes in. Also in space, you're looking at a much harsher radiation environment. So you need to be able to predict what that's likely to be and what the effect will be on your instrument. And electronics especially can be sensitive to radiation. Finally, there's a fair bit of data modeling or data analysis, looking at test results, predictions of what will come out of your instrument, and also the model outputs. And then in addition to that, some of my work at Oxford has included designing and conducting laboratory experiments so that we can replicate the conditions we have in space and measure some of the parameters. We have an idea of what to expect. So how does that compare with what a systems engineer does? Well, in terms of space engineering, the systems engineer needs to understand everything the space scientist does, and then a little bit more. So you need to understand that well enough to be able to see where anything might go wrong, if and when it might happen, and how to alter the analyses and the modeling to fit the situation, and how to apply and act on the results. They're also involved in the instrument testing and the overall integration. So that means knowing how all the parts work individually, how to put them together, and how to make sure that they work effectively with each other. So as well as having a detailed knowledge of the individual systems, the systems engineer also needs to keep in mind the bigger picture. Now, all of that's well and good, but I wouldn't want for a moment to imply that I do all of that entirely on my own. So, 
I'm part of a planetary physics group over at AOPP, that's atmospheric, oceanic, and planetary physics, uh, for anyone who didn't manage to get over there during their undergraduate years. And the planetary group does an awful lot, actually, as you can imagine. So as I mentioned, we do a fair bit of hardware design, uh, the development and manufacture of instruments. It's primarily for space, but we do occasionally dabble in other areas. We have a unique set of skills and expertise, and the word has gotten round. So in the past, we've been asked to do work for people like the Bodleian Library, producing instruments to analyze macro, um, manuscripts. But that's not all we do. So, um, well, actually, let's, let's concentrate on the hardware. So the reason, we, the reason we get so much of the hardware work is that we actually have a fair few unique facilities that no one else in Oxford really seems to know much about. We've got a number of clean rooms that are designed for different applications. We've got our own seismology lab. We've got an optics lab, an electronics lab. And until recently, we also had an on-site mechanical workshop. So that last in particular meant that we had a great deal of prestige in the eyes of NASA and ESA, um, that's the European Space Agency, because we have the facility to do anything that we needed to, to build precision instruments in-house and at very short notice so that we could make changes if we needed to as well. Now, sadly, some of the funding cuts have meant that we no longer have the same facilities here, but we're hoping to retain some of that on-site capability, especially the manufacturing capability, to avoid compromising the work we do and hopefully hang on to some of those lucrative NASA contracts. Nevertheless, so as I mentioned, hardware isn't all that we do. We also have a number of scientists involved in radiative transfer modeling, and the modeling of planetary atmospheres. So we're actually using those instruments that we build in-house to learn more about our solar system. And finally, we also perform environmental simulation, and we're able to create our own facilities to replicate the conditions that you can expect in space and on other planets. So the rig you can see at the bottom is one that was designed and built to create thin films of ice of the type that you might find in the atmosphere of Jupiter, for example, and therefore measure their optical properties. Then, to give you an idea of some of the things we have achieved in the past, here are some of the places where Oxford Hardware is currently operating at the moment. So we've been involved in a number of Earth-orbiting satellites, uh, more than I can possibly mention, but my favorite is hurdles. And that's the one at the top. So the hurdles instrument is on the Aura spacecraft. And it's my favorite because it was designed and calibrated right here in Oxford. We also built a significant amount of the hardware. In fact, the facility that was designed for the testing of hurdles is entirely unique as we have a seismically isolated optical bench inside a four meter vacuum chamber. And it's the only one of its kind in the UK. Now, HURLS is a high-resolution dynamics limb sounder, and it provides measurements of temperature, trace constituents, and aerosols from the atmosphere. And it was particularly important due to its impressive vertical resolution. Then we had a big hand in the SEERS instrument on Cassini, and that's currently orbiting Saturn. So SEERS is the composite infrared spectrometer. And it provides us with information on the thermal structure and the composition of Saturn, its rings, 
and its moons, especially Titan. In fact, I've got the fight spare of the focal plane assembly sitting right here. So if anyone wants to come and take a look afterwards, you're very welcome. Next, there's Mars. So we built the filter assemblies for the Mars climate sounder. And that looks at temperature, humidity, and the dust content of the Martian atmosphere. As a result of that, one of our senior researchers spent an entire summer chasing dust devils across the surface of Mars. Similarly, we also did the filter assemblies for the Diviner Lunar Radiometer on LRO. And that was launched in 2009 in front of some of our staff who were involved in building it. And that's just a small taste of some of the projects we've been involved in. Um, but it just goes to show that we really do get everywhere. And there are perks, so you do get invited along to the launch of the instruments that you've been involved in. Unfortunately, they're not always perks. As the people with LRO found, they brought their flights out there and then discovered that due to the inclement weather, there was a two-week delay in the launch. And so they had to wait in hotels until they were ready to actually relaunch again. But nevertheless, I suppose you can say that it's definitely worth the experience. Now, it's all very well to talk about things we've done in the past, but as every researcher knows, you're only as good as your last paper. So what are we working on right now? Well, these are some of the projects that the group's working on at the moment. And starting from the top left, InSight is a geological mission that's launching in 2016. And I'm part of the team that's working on miniature seismometers that are going to be coupled to the Martian surface to measure earthquakes, or rather, Mars quakes, in this case. Next is CMS, which is a compact modular sounder, and that's just been delivered, and it's scheduled to launch in December. It's an Earth-observing radiometer, so we're hoping for atmospheric temperature profiles at the very least. After that, there's ECHO, which is an exoplanet characterization mission, and the idea is to look at the atmospheres of planets around other stars to see what they're made of, and hopefully learn about how they're formed. Now, I'm heavily involved in all of those three, so I'm going to be talking a bit more about those in detail. But on the bottom left, I've already mentioned Diviner, but now that it's launched and we're actually getting data back, that means that there's additional lunar science being done here in Oxford. So that's using the hardware that we were involved in building. So it doesn't stop once you deliver the instrument. And that's currently in orbit around the moon. Next, OSIRIS-REx is a planned asteroid sample return mission. The idea is that the material returned is expected to enable scientists to learn more about the time before the formation and evolution of the solar system, the initial stages of planet formation, and hopefully the source of the organic compounds that led to the formation of life on Earth. ATMS, then, is probably the instrument that we're going to send on OSIRIS-REx and it's an asteroid thermal mapping spectrometer. It was designed and built for a different asteroid mission, but was overlooked in favor of another instrument. And that is something that happens occasionally in this field. But you often find that if the instrument is good enough and the potential science is valuable, then it'll fly eventually, even if it's not part of the mission it was originally designed for. So I've been working on everything from instrument design, modeling, and analyses, and systems engineering for all of these projects. But to give you a more detailed idea of what the day-to-day -day work actually entails, I thought I'd concentrate then on a couple of those, and at the same time, give you an idea of, or a basic guide, 
to designing your own space instrument. So, how to build a space instrument. Step one. First, design your instrument to solve a problem. While it could be argued that a lot of the work that we do here at Oxford is as close to blue skies research as you can get, in reality, as I mentioned, each instrument is usually designed to very specific requirements. As with other areas of research, we're looking to answer a variety of questions. And while this list isn't exhaustive, most of the time, the research tends to fall into one of these categories. Overarching, and the one that drives us all, is exploration. And George Mallory was famously asked why he was so determined to climb Mount Everest. And his immortal reply was, because it's there. And that's one of my favorite stories. And that's because it so wonderfully sums up why I do what I do. It's a basic human instinct to explore our surroundings. And it's a desire I don't think the human race will ever lose. We're always going to want to know what's out there, how it works, how it got there. And it's a curiosity that's driven some of our greatest discoveries and achievements. At heart, every researcher has an intrepid explorer lurking inside them, urging them on. And the remaining areas here tend to follow on from that. So they fall into the how it works category on the whole. Some instruments are designed to demonstrate the structure of their targets, be it a planet, a star, asteroid, or comet. And the idea is to determine what they're made up of. In line with that, there's chemical analysis. So we often use spectrometers to find out what chemicals make up the bodies in space. The classic question that mankind always wants to know the answer to is, are we alone? And so astrobiology has come to be a fast-growing field and incredibly popular. We want to know not only if there is life beyond the Earth, but whether the origins of life here are actually out in space. Most of the instruments we build here at Oxford, however, tend to be for atmospheric research. If you've ever wanted to know what the weather's like on Saturn, Cassini can tell you. And looking at the atmospheres of other planets also gives us information about the evolution of our own. So these are the common overall questions that we tend to look at in space science. But sometimes the problems that you're looking to solve can be much more specific. Let me illustrate that with an example. This is the Compact Modular Sounder, or CMS. Now, originally, this was approached primarily as a hardware problem. I've mentioned that we made the filter assemblies for the Mars Climate Sounder instrument, and that's currently looking at the Martian atmosphere. Now, that's a very impressive instrument, and it provided us with some incredibly useful science. But it's not without its problems. Its performance is inherently limited because of the way it was designed. Designing a space instrument is not like designing something to work on Earth. There are all sorts of additional factors that you have to consider, such as the ones I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. And one of the most critical ones is size and mass. The cost of launching and operating scientific spacecraft 
can vary from between $20,000 to $200,000 per kilogram. That means you're incredibly limited in terms of size. And what that meant for MCS was that there were issues because of that necessary inhibited structure. First, scientists found that data was compromised by light being scattered from the actual filter assembly structures that were holding the filters. And these were positioned just in front of the detector. The scattered light from the surrounding structure created an additional amount of noise, and that obscured some of the data. Secondly, and this is a perennial issue with all space-based spectrometers, you can only have a limited number of channels. And that's because you can only fit so many filters inside the space. Now, realizing that this was a potentially large roadblock in terms of space instrument design, um, a couple of guys over at AOPP, Neil Bowles and Simon Calcutt, decided it was time to address it. And so they asked me to produce an optical design that would get around both of those issues, but that would still result in an instrument that would fit in the palm of your hand. And as you can see, we did it. In fact, this design is so innovative, it's just been patented. Now, there are two key features here to solve the problems that were highlighted by MCS. First, there was the scattered light from the filter assembly right in front of the detectors. Now, the important move there was moving the filters away from the detector. But that means you have to add an intermediate focus. And the problem with that is it necessarily creates a bigger, more complex design. But if you had the filters there instead of at the detector, then there's no big metallic structure there to scatter light back onto your focal plane, confusing your signal. Then we have the issue of the limited space for the filters. But if you can spread the light out more, you can put in more filters. So how do you do that? You add magnification to your intermediate focus. That's where your filters are. If it's twice as big there, you can put in twice as many filters. Of course, deciding on the approach and then actually going through and producing a design that fulfills all of those requirements, and, but is still lightweight and has a small footprint and good quality image, those are two very different things. But there's a reason that I'm still employed, and it's sitting on this satellite. Tech Demosat is a technology demonstration satellite, and it's being launched by Surrey Satellite Technology. It'll be the first of its kind to be launched by the UK. It was entirely designed and built in Britain. It has four instruments, one of which is CMS. Now, being given the opportunity to demonstrate a new instrument is not something that happens every day. So when SSTL asked if we could build, test, and deliver an instrument in about 18 months, we lied and said, sure. It turns out we weren't lying. We asked Railspace to design the electronics, and the whole instrument was built, calibrated, and tested in Oxford. The CMS is going to be the first instruments that I worked on to be launched, as most instrument development tends to take years, as you can imagine. So she was delivered in June of this year. She weighs about 23 kilos, and I couldn't be prouder. 
So that's solving a problem. How about step two? In building a space instrument, environmental survival. As you can imagine, space is harsh. So the radiation levels are much higher than anything that you'd naturally encounter on Earth. And there are some places where you can get chemical interaction from things like atomic oxygen. Then there's the actual process of the launch, which involves large g-forces and a great deal of vibration that could destroy sensitive equipment. The extreme temperatures can go from just a few degrees above absolute zero, so that's about minus 270 degrees C, to many hundreds of degrees C for instruments that are in solar orbit, for example. And then finally, there's that whole vacuum thing, and that's not to be underestimated. If it can turn an astronaut inside out, imagine what it can do to a glass encapsulated seismometer with a delicately etched silicon spring. So what do we do to deal with these conditions? Well, we're physicists, so the first thing we do is to model them. That includes finite element, mechanical, thermal, and radiation modeling to predict how the instrument will behave and therefore how to improve it so that it will survive in those conditions. But that's not enough for us because Murphy's Law teaches us that if anything can go wrong, it will. And therefore, we test. Everything we build is tested to within an inch of its life and sometimes beyond. We thermally cycle hardware to both extremes of temperature over many cycles, and then we shake it in our own vibration facility, which you can see here at the top. On top of that, we also have a number of space environment chambers that replicate the environment the instrument will see so that we can test it under representative conditions. And sometimes those conditions are really quite hard to replicate. So again, let me illustrate with an example. This is the InSight mission, and its aim is to investigate what goes on below the surface of Mars. As well as seismometers, the lander is going to include a mole-like instrument capable of digging deep underground. And in this way, we hope to learn more about the structure of Mars, so whether or not it has tectonic plates like the Earth. And it's generally agreed that if there's any chance of still finding life on Mars, it's likely to be subsurface microbial. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the general principle of putting instruments into space is the heavier it is, the harder it is to get there. So the ideal instrument is small, lightweight, simple, few moving parts, so fewer things can potentially go wrong, because it's a lot harder to go out and fix it on Mars than it is out here. And in a perfect world, it would be completely indestructible. At the top here is a conventional earthbound seismometer. And below it is the specially developed space version. The device measures vibrations in one dimension. So you actually have to have three of them to make up a whole instrument. Now, my job on this project, among other things, involved calibrating the seismometers. So that's putting a scale on them so we know the size of the vibrations. Now, in order to do that, I first had to find something else to compare it to. However, the conditions of Mars are very different to those on Earth. The gravity is much lower. The atmosphere is very thin and primarily made up of carbon dioxide. And it gets mighty cold at night. 
So to make sure the instrument can cope with that, we first need to cool it down to the kinds of temperatures that it will see on Mars, say 150K or about 80 degrees C, or minus 80 degrees C, let me correct. <laughs> but you can't use anything that makes vibrations because that will confuse the issue. So your average fridge is out. Given that, I wrapped it in a big copper block, as you can see here. So the copper gets cold very quickly, especially if you make a cavity in it. Around here, there's a little pipe running with a big hole in it. And then I stuffed it with liquid nitrogen. So it acts like a massive cold blanket. And once you've got the nitrogen in there, there are no pumps and therefore no vibrations. But then you've got the issue of that atmosphere. So I take the blanketed box and I put it in a big steel chamber. And then I suck all the air out of it. And then to make it more Martian, I put a little bit of CO2 back in there. Again, at the right pressure, all pumps off, keeping everything as quiet as possible. The next issue, though, is the seismometer that you're comparing it to. Now, that's an earthbound one. It really doesn't like being in a vacuum, and it doesn't like getting cold but it has to feel the same vibrations as the other one, or it won't work. So what now? Well, it turns out in seismometry, there aren't many problems that a big lump of rock won't fix. And this is mine. The most expensive lump of rock I've ever bought at tens of thousands of pounds. Now, the conventional seismometer sits on top, although we are currently thinking about modifying this design. Um, but as it is, the rest of the kit is bolted onto the bottom. The two instruments are diametrically opposite each other, which means, hopefully, if I hit this thing with a hammer, both instruments are going to experience the same vibration. Of course, in space science, hopefully won't cut it. So then, I also acquired a very expensive bit of kit that's made up of magic lasers. <laughs> it actually uses a Doppler system, and it's a secondary check to make sure that the two, the top of the micro-seismometer and the granite are vibrating in the same way relative to each other. And that means that we can iron out any discrepancies that there might be with some clever data analysis afterwards. It took me a few months to complete the design, but an awful lot longer to put everything together. And the reason it takes that long is because you have to calculate exactly how much copper you'll need to get everything to the right temperatures, as well as a few other calculations to determine the materials that you're going to use, how long it'll take to get everything to work, that kind of thing. I then sourced all the parts and the materials over the next six months and had the bits made up. Given the amount of time I spent working on this aspect of the instrument, I was then given responsibility for the quality assurance of this project, and that's what I'm working on now. Finally, Step three, planetary protection. Now, this is one of the least known, yet most interesting aspects of the job. Okay, I promise. Usually, I stay away from that physics nerd Star Trek reference, the way a small child stays away from broccoli. Um, but this time, there's actually a very good reason that that's there. 
So planetary protection in the real world is effectively an application of the prime directive. It's the rocket scientist version of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. The aim is threefold. First, we have to make sure that we protect life on Earth from potential harm as a result of contaminants that we might bring back from space, either from sample return missions or due to something inadvertently hitching a ride on an astronaut. Similarly, we've got to make sure we don't cause any harm to any potential life or ecosystem that we encounter in space or on other planets. Finally, and whatever you might think of the probability of the first two scenarios, this one's actually quite likely, a number of experiments on landers tend to involve life detection experiments. And it's crucial that we don't transfer any material from Earth that might give us a false positive. Imagine the embarrassment of having to admit on the BBC that the first discovered Martian life form was actually a cold virus that originated in a lab technician. So how do we go about making sure that we can do all this? Well, on Earth, there are three main processes involved, and those are contamination control, sterilization, and bioburden monitoring. So contamination control involves minimizing the amount of contaminant that ends up on the spacecraft. And that's primarily biological material where planetary protection is concerned. So that means, effectively, you have to treat your instrument like a quarantined patient. Sterilization is exactly what it says on the tin. There are a number of different ways to sterilize instruments, and which one you use depends on the sensitivity of your hardware. You can either heat things to incredibly high temperatures, or you can irradiate them although the latter can be quite harmful for sensitive electronics, as you can imagine. Then there's also the possibility of chemical sterilization, uh, so, for example, with hydrogen peroxide, but that's not often used, again, due to potential degradation of the material as a result. And then bioburden monitoring just means being aware of exactly how much is alive on your hardware at any one time. So bioburden is the term that we give to biological material that could be a potential contaminant. Primarily, it tends to be in the form of colony-forming bacterial spores. Now, for monitoring purposes, we take assays and swabs of all hardware components during and after manufacture, and these are then cultivated and cultured in a microbiology lab on the same day. For control purposes, there are strict regulations that govern the manufacture and handling of instruments. We have a comprehensive gowning procedure that involves a separate pair of gloves for dressing and for working. And I have to take off any makeup before I enter the clean room. Beards are discouraged. I had to shave mine off. Um, I'm kidding. They let me wear a beard cover, so it's fine. Um, then the health of personnel in contact with hardware is also closely monitored. You're not allowed anywhere near the instrument if you have a cold, or if you've had a cigarette in the last hour. So all smokers were carefully filtered out and shot. It turns out the particulates in your lungs can actually be enough to cause significant harm to the sensitive hardware, although how much of that counts as biological material is debatable. Then for real-time monitoring, we have this ingenious EndoSafe PTS device right here. 
Uh, that detects endotoxins, which chemicals present on bacteria. And we use it for ind immediate indications of bacterial levels in the clean room. So it's not as accurate as culturing, but it does give us an immediate indication if we have any sort of contaminating event. Now the test is actually derived from the blood of the horseshoe crab, which is this blue stuff here. They really are blue-blooded. Now, it turns out, amazingly, the, cat, the crab has a very natural reaction to the endotoxins of this bacteria. And those are used for a number of biological monitoring applications. And there's actually a video, if you're curious enough, to go on the internet, although it's a bit long to show here, and it might give you nightmares. Um, it does give you an outline of the whole process, which is actually remarkably close to alien abduction. Now, essentially, farmers reach into the water, they take the individual crabs away into the surface, the sky, and they take them to special sterile laboratories where they carefully insert a probe into the crab that allows them to milk it for a small amount of blood. And having done that, they then safely return the crab to its home to share its tale of abduction with its disbelieving friends. Now, the strictest planetary protection requirements we currently have are on inside because it's a lander mission. But I've already told you about that. So instead, I have this slightly less than seamless link to the ECHO mission. Now, this is the Exoplanet Characterization Observatory. And bear with me. So the connection to planetary protection is we're hoping to find planets with the right conditions for the emergence of life. As you may or may not know, exoplanets are planets that orbit stars other than our sun, and it's only in the past couple of decades that we've actually been able to prove their existence. So evidence of the first was discovered in 1992. ECHO has a suite of instruments that are going to measure the light from known exoplanets to give us information that will allow us to identify and characterize the atmospheres of those planets. Now, the hope is that we can say whether, well, what kind of planets they are, whether they're Earth-like or Jupiter-like, how they came about, what they're made of, and crucially, of course, because we're only human, whether or not they could potentially support life. My role on ECHO is primarily to provide systems engineering support. ECHO is made up of four instrument modules, one for four different parts of the wavelength spectrum of infrared light. And each module is designed to provide high resolution measurements within a particular range. Oxford's prime responsibility is to provide the long wave module, and that's being led by Neil Bowles, who I mentioned earlier. Each instrument module then has its own detector, and those all require their own front end and readout electronics. We have a cooler system. And that's implemented to keep the detectors at a low enough temperature for optimal performance. And finally, there's a telescope system that collects the light for the instruments. And that's combined with a set of common optics that collect and focus the light into the best beam shape and size for each of the instrument modules. And that comes up here and is divided up into all the modules. Now, as lead systems engineer, it's my job to make sure that each aspect of the instrument performs as it should, that it satisfies the requirements, 
that it works with the rest of the spacecraft successfully, and that it's built, tested, and delivered on time. And that was a whistle-stop tour of Oxford's role in exploring the universe. So I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned, there are a couple of flight spares of the hardware that we currently have in space up here, if anyone wants to come and take a look. This is the Sears Focal Plane Assembly flight spare. And this is a wind sensor that sadly went further into the surface of Mars on Beagle 2 than we really wanted it to. <laughs> but we have the flight spare. And of course, I'd be very happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you very much. <laughs>